This is Move to Live More, a podcast series profiling thought leaders in healthcare, health and fitness, and communities. We explore the connection between physical activity and mental and physical health. We address solutions for chronic disease, obesity, and physical inactivity through cross-sector collaboration and innovation. Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Amy Bantham, the CEO and founder of Move to Live More, with a mission to help people live healthier, longer, more active lives. This episode is brought to you by Move to Live More, a research and consulting firm integrating healthcare, health and fitness, and communities to address chronic disease and physical inactivity. I'm here today with Dr. Jessica Grossmeyer, CEO at Jessica Grossmeyer Consulting and author of Reimagining Workplace Well-Being, Fostering a Culture of Purpose, Connection, and Transcendence. Jessica, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Jessica, you and I first met when you were with Hero, and I know that you've transitioned and are focusing on a different area of workplace well-being. Can you tell us a little bit about that transition and your current focus? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, Amy. So I had a very intentional one-year sabbatical last year. I had been planning to do that for years. It wasn't a, a COVID-inspired pause. And I, what I was really interested in doing is just reading whatever my curiosity bubbled up. And I started to look into the area of workplace spirituality probably around February of last year. And I was excited to step into a whole world of scholarship that I had no idea existed. Even though I'd been interested in that topic for years, I didn't know that all of this research existed. And so I started to read books and research studies and call the authors and see if they would talk to me to learn more about this area. And towards the middle or end of the year, I started to to look at the headlines that were emerging and thinking about how are employers going to be responding to the emerging needs in our workforce. And the things that I was reading about, I felt really held value and an answer and a response to these emerging trends of burnout and the quit rates that we were seeing emerge in mental health. And so I was encouraged to write a book that would incorporate the reading I had been doing into workplace well-being and to try to bring these two areas of research together in a way that would hopefully build some bridges you talked about reading headlines and clearly you dove deep into the literature and the evidence space. I too read headlines and I work at the intersection of physical and mental health and physical activity. And more and more those headlines are focused around mental health, the mental health crisis, dare we say the mental health pandemic it's impacting adults, it's impacting kids, it's impacting parents, and we're seeing it manifest itself in burnout, in resignation, and we hear a lot about the great resignation. What has fundamentally shifted with the great resignation and how employers need to be responding to these emerging needs in how they address well-being in the workplace? I think it's a really good question. And 
as I've been following the experts who are looking at this and commenting about it, I really feel the nature of the employer-employee relationship has changed. And it used to be good enough to offer amazing benefits and high pay, competitive pay, and to be offering professional development and learning. And those things are all still really important, but they're table stakes now. Recent surveys show that toxic workplace culture is one of the number one reasons that employees are quitting their jobs in such high numbers. And I was looking at in a commentary that was commenting about the different trends that we were seeing. And they pointed out that increasing resignation rates is not a new thing. It's just peaking that we've actually been seeing in a steady increase in voluntary quit rates when you track it in the BLS. And so what is it about the pandemic that has shifted that? I think there was a, a whole world of understanding, trying things differently. Um, the workplace was utterly disrupted. And just the nature of the existential crisis that we found ourselves in globally and on so many levels, it really caused people to pause and consider, why am I working so hard? Why does this feel so hard? Um, how can How can I reignite joy and fulfillment in my work again, because we're spending so much time at work. And so many of the other outlets that we would have to support our thriving in our communities, in our churches, in our friend groups, they were absolutely disrupted by the pandemic as well. It made it very difficult to get those sources of support. And so when all people have is whoever's in their bubble around them, their immediate circle and the workplace, now we've raised the the attention on the effect of our work on our well-being. And it's no longer enough to offer what we used to offer. We now need to um, look at, well, what is it employees really want out of their work? And when asked, the people that quit their jobs last year say, I want a more flexible schedule. I want more meaning and purpose and fulfillment in my work. And they want to feel valued, respected, and included by their peers. And so these are the needs that employers need to address. And the well-being space hasn't traditionally addressed these in a very strategic way. There's, there's been some dabbling for sure. But as I started to look into this area, I thought, you know, there, there, there can be a stronger and more rigorous framework. There can be more of an evidence base supporting this framework. And that's, that's why I wrote the book. You talked about a disrupted industry, essentially, and I work in a disrupted industry, the health and fitness industry. And in my experience, it's when industries are disrupted where the most change occurs. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the change we'd like to see, because you've mentioned, and I found this as well, I've struggled with what some of the employer well-being programs offered to employees really were it it felt like they were lip service and weren't truly getting at the heart of the problem and to your very valid point they weren't necessarily what employees needed or wanted so can we talk about this evolution from a more from from the past the historical the traditional approach to moving to an approach that really gets at the heart of what employees say they need and want. And I, I heard you mention purpose. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So I think that there are really two major ways that employers can um, address workplace well-being in a more rigorous and comprehensive way. And the first isn't necessarily a new way, but I think that there's going to need to be some doubling down on this. And the first way is to move beyond offering only individual level well-being programs and services. We've been talking about the need for culture to support programs for a really long time in this field. And some employers have heeded that message and have been working on culture. They've been working on leadership behaviors, uh, a physical environment that supports. Now we have to look at a virtual environment and hybrid environments that, that support well-being. But where there continue to be pockets of a toxic culture, where there is disrespect, incivility, bullying, um, just poor managers, <laughs> that, that is now intolerable. I think, I think companies said, well, as long as we're meeting our numbers, our key performance indicators, we're going to allow some of this to exist. They can't do that anymore. They won't be able to get away with it because employees will leave. They won't be able to attract and retain top talent. The, the other way, and, and that's really what my book addresses, I, I do talk about the need to move beyond individual level. I talk about four levels of influence, including individual, um, interpersonal, organizational and societal, and that all comes from the socio-ecological research. And then we also need leaders to step up and, and to play their part. But when it comes to expanding the dimensions of well-being, what we've left behind largely is this need to address meaning and purpose in one's work and to understand that there's a connection between one's purpose in life and their work performance, as well as their well-being. And so the book talks a lot about it. It makes a business case for why we need to address individual purpose. We've talked a lot, especially in the conscious capitalism space about purpose-driven organizations and employees will be more likely to be attracted to and to stay with organizations that have a mission that's broader than just profits. But individual employee purpose is also a need. And that, that could be helping employees to connect with what do you dream about? What gets you excited? What helps you to, to, to have joy and experience wonder in your life? And we need to help employees to connect with that. Um, the other areas that I talk about are um, higher quality connections with coworkers. So meaningful relationships at work. And that's something that the pandemic really taught us. We need to be more intentional about that. There there are a lot of things employers can do in the workplace environment to encourage that. And then a connection to something bigger than ourselves that I call transcendence. And I was looking for a, a, a bit of a less esoteric word, but it's, it's really the right word when you look at the definition, which means to rise above your own self-interest. It means to be connecting with something that's bigger and outside of us. And in employers, there are a lot of ways employers can do that. Um, at the individual, interpersonal, and organizational and societal levels. And so altogether, that is a more comprehensive framework. And between those three things all coming together, employers can really address, I think, the heart and soul of well-being, which has largely been ignored. I want to talk first about culture, because it's very, very challenging to change culture. And I've seen instances where organizations did have a toxic culture and did have 
employees leaving in droves and really top talent institutional memory headed out the door. But because the toxic culture started at the top and filtered down, it seemed to continue. And so how do companies, organizations identify toxic culture, root out toxic culture, change it at every level, top, middle management, down, to the point that culture is so challenging to change? One of the things that as I started to look at companies who are truly creating cultures of well-being and addressing some of these areas, it starts by naming what, how is it we want to behave together in the workplace? Because it really comes down to how, how do we act in our communications and, and in our behavior with one another? And that creates culture. There are other things that influence that policies for sure. Are you measuring the right things? Because what measures tends to get the most attention. And so if you can begin to articulate how, how do we want people to treat each other around here? And then we need to notice is that happening? Where is it not happening? And sometimes we need to do that with measurement. We need to do that with accountability systems that we can build in and to create environments of psychological safety for so people can, can feel comfortable saying to a coworker, hey, that doesn't really honor this value for how we say we're going to behave together in the organization. One of the case examples that I point to in the book is an organization called Softway. And it's a fantastic turnaround story because they started with a massive reduction in force. A third of their workforce lost in the same hour on a Monday through a, a, a terrible process, very toxic culture. And the CEO who was retained in that turnover, that, that big change, um, had a real crisis of leadership. And he came back the next Monday and he said, we're going to do things differently around here. You know, that was not okay. And they, they started to articulate together, what does it mean to really care, create a culture of caring at this workplace? How can we have each other's backs? How can we fight for each other and fight for this company? And so he rallied people around him and, and they ended up writing a book. One of my favorite books last year was called Love is a Business Strategy. And um, th that's what they did is they named, this is how we're going to behave. They noticed and created an environment so that People could go to the CEO and say, hey, how you handled that communication, that email, what you said in that meeting, that, that doesn't honor our values. And, and then when we name the right behaviors and we notice them, we create norms that help us slowly to create the culture that we want. And this takes time. You know, you can't outsource it. And I think that's where a lot of corporates have fallen down on this whole culture change idea is they... They bring in an external company and they try to outsource it and don't want to take responsibility. And it's hard work because everybody from the top executives through um, the middle management, director, supervisor, managerial, it has to influence everything, your policies, your training, who you hire, who you promote. All of these things can be built into a system that honors caring in a more humanistic approach. You raise a really interesting point about outsourcing change and cultural change because consultants have the a little bit of distance a little bit of perspective but it's hard for them to really 
name and understand and identify the values and norms that you've pointed out are so critical to name and identify as a first step for, for cultural change. You gave that example of the leader who, who really had quite a wake-up call. Mm-hmm. And you talk in the book about employers needing to heed the wake-up call individually in their organizations and employers writ large heeding the great resignation wake-up call. What will prompt employers to heed this wake-up call in in your opinion and and based on your research and in your expertise in this field? It'll be interesting to see, I think, what happens it's, it's a bit hard, you know, I'm an optimist. <laughs> and so I'd like to say, look, the numbers are there. We have the business case. Let's, let's move forward and do things differently. But at the same time, I hear real world stories every day from people that I know about organizations that are not behaving well. And, and, and they're, they're terrible environments to work in. It, it really breaks my heart. And so we have a long way to go to reach everyone. And I don't know that we will ever reach everyone, but it may start from the point of, I think, attracting and retaining workers. Obviously, when you have um, job openings that aren't filled because you can't attract people to your company, no matter how much you pay them, because as word has gotten out, this is the evil empire, right? Don't want to work here. Um, And there's a lot of transparency around that. You know, places like Glassdoor, for example, allow employees to say, you know, here's, here's the way it really is. <laughs> and so it's, it's going to begin to really hurt companies when they can't fill positions they need to get their product out the door to, to be able to be innovative and to be adaptable. They need top talent. And so I think that's, that's going to be a pain point that will cause some employers to say, look, we need to, we need to make a change in that might result in huge changes in leadership, which now are an opportunity for an organization to really change and bring on the right leaders. Um, leaders like Uber Jolie from who, who was who was part of the Best Buy turnaround. And he was brought on and, and he said, we are going to lead with a people-centric culture. Yes, we have to return ourselves to profitability, but we will do it by investing first in people. And so I think organizations will have an opportunity to respond to these pain points, but it might be quite dramatic. I think it might come from investors, from shareholders, um, from boards of directors, stepping up and saying and applying pressure, and from consumers. You know, consumers more and more are making um, decisions with their pocketbooks about we're not going to support companies that are quite well known in some cases for not treating their employees well. So it's going to come from a lot of different sides. And I, I think we are seeing sort of this perfect storm of pressure being applied to workplaces, but it can't happen soon enough based on some of the stories I've heard just in the past week. Yeah, you make a really important point about accountability and transparency of information contributing to that application of, of pressure, reputation, I really like your framing around pain points, and that's how I often look at problems and and propose solutions. And certainly a pain point throughout the pandemic has been the inability to attract and retain enough talent to provide 
fundamental services that the service industry provides, for example. And that has really been very noticeable to consumers. Mm -hmm. You talked about really doing a deep dive into the evidence base mm -hmm. around next generation well-being initiatives. What did you find? In terms of the value add, the differential from doing things the way that we've always done them, because that's the way we do them when we approach well-being initiatives. I think that it really begins by understanding and shifting the why for our workplace well-being programs. What is it that we're trying to address here? And it goes much broader than we're trying to impact physical health and productivity and um, healthcare cost trends, which a lot of the wellness injury has been steeped in that. Um, we are seeing, in, you know, a very, very strong emergence in mental health issues. And that has opened up uh, just a, a new world for people to be thinking about. There's so many dimensions. And I feel like workplace spirituality really fits into the mental and emotional um, space. There's so many connections there. Um, when we look at what we're hoping to see from workplace wellness programs in the future, I think it's really going to come down to understanding that you can have a lot of different metrics in place, but you have to also include employee perceptions. Because in that, that has seemed like a soft metric, I think, for a lot of employers, but it really comes down to it doesn't matter how many programs and services and benefits you're offering to understand if your culture, if your workplace is truly advancing human thriving, we have to understand how our employees feel about what they're experiencing. And, you know, when it comes to connection, do I feel seen, heard, and valued? And if the answer is no, <laughs> well, then that's influencing their well-being and it's influencing their team's well-being and performance. And it's going to influence eventually the reputation of the company and the ability to attract and retain employees. So there are a lot of downstream outcomes that come out of employee perceptions. And so I think we need to be asking different questions. And that comes in the form of pulse surveys in, in terms of our um, our employee experience and um, annual pulse or poll surveys, all of those things need to be thinking about, do employees feel seen, heard, and valued? Do they feel like they understand how they can pursue more meaningful work and to experience joy at work and to experience wonder and awe? And so we have to, we have to remember that we're spending so much time at work when we can create environments where people feel that that spark of excitement about what they're doing and they're making new discoveries, whether it's in their work or they discovered a, a coworker and they share a mutual delight about something, travel or a work of art, it could be anything really, <laughs> the, same, the same band that they follow or a sports team. You know, those are the things that fill us up and make us feel alive. And it can just be a chance encounter that you have with somebody as part of a meeting or a passing by in a workspace. But those are the things that, that give us that warm feeling of, 
oh, I feel like I belong here. I feel like I'm connected to other people who care about the same things. And it does add, I think, new life to our work. So we have to start paying attention to those types of outcomes. I think feeling seen, heard, and valued is pretty much what we all hope for, whether in a corporate setting, whether in our personal lives. And from your perspective, I know that you have done a lot of work with assessments, with research, with asking the questions. And I often marvel at the extent to which we will sit around and and wonder and discuss what others think when it seems like an obvious next step is to go and ask them. So what's a good way to ask employees whether they feel seen, heard, and valued, and then to develop initiatives that help them feel more seen, heard, and valued? Yeah, so we do quite a bit of assessment in the workplace already, whether it's part of your well-being assessment, or it could be exit interviews. <laughs> it could be your, your employee engagement surveys. It could be part of the performance review process. Does, do I feel like my manager you know, sees me, hears me, values me? Um, we can be asking in a, in a lot of the surveys. So we do have a lot of those um, focus groups. Um, typically, when you bring in culture change, um, change management group to come and help and support. I, I, I think that there is a place for external support in culture change. They do begin with assessment. They begin by tuning in and they do that a lot through focus groups, through surveys and through one-on-one -on -one interviews with key influencers in the organization, people who really have their finger on the pulse of what's going on in the organization at all levels. And so I think that that's a starting point, but if you're looking for it, we can find sometimes in claims data, <laughs> you know, good old fashioned claims data. If, if the data are structured in certain ways, you, begin to, you can begin to see why do we have so much long-term disability in this particular business unit? Or why are we seeing so many leaves of absence under this particular supervisor? Um, you start to see grievances emerging, patterns of grievance that have been lodged with HR. So it's, it, it's, it's time to make sure that those things aren't being buried and hidden. We need, we need to bring them into the light and to pay attention to them because that can be a hot spot for opportunity for us to really go in. And then how do you address it? We offer a lot of training to employees, managers, supervisors. If we're not, we need to get on top of that. But you can start to infuse these ideas into whatever training you are offering or learning or professional development you're offering and help them to understand how we treat one another is fundamentally important to how this business performs. And so these are the ways to, to build stronger relationships at work, to build stronger teams. And none of this is new. Organizations have known this for a long time, but it's helping them understand this is a contributor to employee well-being and thriving. If you're not taking care of these things, you, you, can't, you can't really thrive. And so connecting the dots. And so I, I have a whole chapter that talks about the need for us to be multidisciplinary. You bring up two really important themes, which are essential to my work. One is following the data, whether it be quantitative data or, or qualitative data. 
And the other is connecting the dots and knocking down silos and making sure the right hand is talking to the left hand and HR is talking to other departments. You've mentioned the health outcomes case for workplace well-being initiatives, and you've mentioned the business case for workplace well-being initiatives. How is the type of more holistic approach to workplace well-being initiatives, how can that type of approach have more, greater, bigger, better impact on both health outcomes and business outcomes, profitability? Well, I, I think one of the things that we've seen in the pandemic is you you can try to be taking care of these different dimensions of well-being, but if you haven't addressed meaning and purpose, connection and belonging, and this sense of what helps me to feel alive in my work, if those things are being ignored, then you, you're you're leaving opportunity on the table when it comes to well-being because you know, I've been at places in my career, just to bring this to more of a personal story, when my purpose wasn't really being addressed, when I felt like I, I was more isolated in my connections with my peers, it felt hollow. Every success felt hollow and empty. And that's a real danger for high performers, especially high performers who have felt my work is my calling in life. You know, they, they, they're doing what they're doing because they're so passionate. I think of doctors and nurses. At some point, if meaning and purpose, connection and belonging are not being addressed, you, they can only burn so long on the passion, the inner passion that they have. And so that's where we, I think a lot of the quit rates are coming from is, is people aren't feeling fully supported in the way that's needed. And they just said, I, I, you know, I can't, I can't do this on my own strength anymore. It's so interesting when I look at the statistics um, and some of the surveys that have come out in the past year, it was something over half or just about half of those who quit did not have another job lined up. 80% of them were offered renegotiation packages with their companies and they turned it down and quit anyway. 53% of those who accepted new jobs accepted a job with a lower salary. I, I feel like if, if we can bring this more holistic approach, all of the downstream things that companies are looking for, productivity, performance, innovation, creativity, adaptability, you know, these things come from these more upstream needs being met. Because when, when people feel like the company is investing in their well-being and it's a place where they can really come and bring their whole self, everything flows from that in my mind. Those are incredibly damning statistics when people are offered a chance to to renegotiate and they turn it down and continue on with their with leaving i appreciated your research and evidence and data and statistics in the book and your pairing of those with your personal stories one of my professors always said no story without a statistic no statistic without a story and you were able to to put forth both and really make them stick Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about your book, to talk about next generation well-being initiatives, to talk about pain points for employers and, and how 
really a, a more holistic approach to workplace well-being might be able to begin to address some of those pain points. So I appreciate your time today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Amy. It was nice to connect with you again. Thanks for listening to the Move to Live More podcast series. Be sure to click subscribe and check us out at movetolivemore.com. We'll see you next time.